Welcome to JPAM's Closer Look podcast. I'm your host, Seth Gershenson of American University, and I'll be talking to leading authors published in the Journal of Policy Analysis and Management on a variety of timely policy issues related to healthcare, education, environmental policy, immigration reform, economics, and more. The Journal of Policy Analysis and Management is currently hosted by the School of Public Affairs at American University, which also generously supports this podcast. American University's SPA, or School of Public Affairs, is the number 10th ranked School of Public Affairs in the nation by U.S. News, the number 4th ranked school in public management, number 8 in nonprofit management, and number 16 in both public policy and public finance and budgeting. The chief editor of JPAM is Erdal Tekin, also a professor of public policy at American University. Hi, everybody. Our guests today are Dr. Dan Bowen, an associate professor in the School of Education and Human Development at Texas A&M University, and also Brian Casita, assistant professor at the Truman School of Government and Public Affairs at the University of Missouri. Both of our guests today jointly co-direct the newly established Arts, Humanities, and Civic Engagement Lab, which is generously supported by the National Endowment for the Arts. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having us. Thanks for having us. Yeah, I'm really excited to talk to both of you today about your forthcoming publication in JPAM. The article is entitled Investigating the Causal Effects of Arts Education. As the title suggests, your paper estimates the impact of access to a novel arts program on a host of student outcomes. And the program is in Houston, and we'll get into the details of of the, the program in a bit. But I wanted to start with some definitions just to sort of set the stage for our our conversation today. So first off, broadly speaking, what do you have in mind when we say arts education? So this, for this particular program, the definition of arts education is probably about as broad as the definition of arts education is in actual K-12 education, meaning that we're talking about everything from visual arts, performing arts, literary arts, media arts, music, and they, they were offered through a broad array of formats. So we're talking about these things being offered through teaching artist residencies, in-school artist performances and workshops, field trips, before and after school programs. So we're really talking about a cornucopia of different varieties of arts educational offerings for this particular study. Okay. And so it sounds like in your description there, there's both learning by doing of students doing their own art projects, but also observing and viewing professional art exhibits. Correct. And since the 1980s or so, your paper says that there's been a fairly steep decline in the provision of arts education in public schools. And that certainly fits, I think, the sort of the anecdotal narrative that I've heard. But I'm curious, how is that decline quantified? Like, how is it measured? And could you give us an example in practical terms of of what that means for a, a typical public school student? One of the things, this is Brian, one of the things that has been difficult in terms of arts education research and the study of it is that we have always struggled with the lack of data. Obviously, you know, there's a lot more data when it comes to math and reading, standardized test scores and things like Mm -hmm. that. So the basic trend data has been generated by the National Endowment for the Arts Survey of Public Participation in the Arts, where they have asked people from different cohorts um, whether or not they were exposed to arts education. And it was 
the general trend there is that it was fairly common until roughly the 1980s when it really started to decline quite drastically. Of course, this does somewhat correspond with the rise of more metrics that would focus schools on standardized test score outcomes. What it means for the average student now in terms of those declines is if you disaggregate those declines, say, among student race, these declines have mostly been experienced by Black and Hispanic and other minority students with uh, 25 and 19 percentage point declines respectively, whereas white student participation has actually remained stable. So now if you look at the cross-section of schools and their offerings of arts education, it's a lot of the usual suspects when it comes to explaining where those disparities are. Schools with higher shares of free and reduced price lunch students um, consistently have access to arts in terms of instructional time, um, course offerings, facilities, and this also correlates, you know, unfortunately, in a, in, in a very similar way in terms of out-of-school metrics. So the National Endowment for the Arts also collects these data by asking parents how much they're able to offer arts education to their students outside of school. And these follow sort of the same usual characteristics where Black and Hispanic students are less likely to receive arts outside of school, parents with lower education levels, lower income levels. And so this ends up creating a situation where the students, you know, the underserved students are the most dependent on the public school system to provide it, but those are the same students who are seeing declines in their public school systems. Yeah. Well, so I was going to ask, you know, why is this decline happening? And I think you kind of indirectly answered uh, there by, you know, saying, if you look at the students that are losing access, it's a lot of, of uh, the historically disadvantaged lower income students. And so, you know, income inequality is not just associated with household income, but also with with the funding and the resources of the public schools that students attend. And I mean, anecdotally, I would have assumed that, you know, the reason for this decline is is mainly budgetary. When school budgets tighten, the arts are, are one of the first things on the chopping block. It seems like you're saying that it, it is as simple as that. Is, is that fair to say? I think it actually is that plus the mix of accountability system. So schools that are under-resourced, as we know, tend to also struggle to meet the standards set out by accountability mechanisms. So, you know, if you think about Campbell's Law, which states, you know, the more some quantitative indicator is used for decision-making, the more it will be subject to distort the process as it's intended to monitor. And so there is research out there that has shown that the accountability systems have led to narrowing of curriculum and shifting resources more towards tested subjects. Underserved schools are even more likely to be feeling those accountability pressures. There's a federal government report showing that actually schools that were designated as needing improvement under No Child Left Behind were the most likely to experience decreases in time spent on arts education. So I think it's a it's a combination of the two, but what it ends up meaning is that the underserved students at the end of the day are the ones not receiving the full, fully rounded education. Right. That makes perfect sense how they how the increased focus on test scores and budget tightening sort of uh, combine in that way. So the possible good news here, though, is that it seems like the pendulum might be swinging back at least a little bit in favor of the arts. And specifically, I guess I'm referring to the 2015 ESSA Act, the Every Student Succeeds Act, which I believe formally included the arts in their definition of a well-rounded education. And I, I think that might be the first time that that's really been done in federal legislation. 
Is that right? And would you agree that the pendulum is swinging back at least a little bit in favor of the arts in public schools? Yeah, I think that we both would agree that the pendulum is swinging back. I don't know to the extent that, you know, Essa putting it in the language is more of a something, you know, something that is going to lead to changes or if it's a, a, a product of the pendulum swinging back. I mean, the the political push to to add that language, I think, was part of a backlash over testing and curriculum narrowing that we saw, you know, for example, in the opt-out movement of a few years ago, where parents were pulling their kids out of schools to try to, you know, influence policymakers to lessen the focus on testing. So there's actually other parts of the most recent ESSA reauthorization, which I think may more have may have more systematic effects in terms of the new requirements for broader accountability measures that the federal government is asking states to create, which have created, which have caused states now to include indicators such as school engagement, disciplinary infractions, attendance, indicators of social emotional learning and school climate when assessing school quality, uh, when generating school report cards. And I think ESSA's push towards these broader measures bodes well for the arts. In fact, there's a lot of, besides the, the sort of like general theoretical framework that the arts are more likely to influence school climate and social emotional learning development, I think that there's even just more often now school report cards are having indicators that are directly related to arts access and offerings. So I think that, yes, it's important that ESSA is signaling this and saying that this is important, but I think it may be even more important that we bake these things into accountability systems so we're able to shine a light on where the arts are working and where there are disparities. I think that's exactly right. And I, I think that's a, a general good part of ESSA is taking that more holistic approach to, to what a good school is and what a good school does. And that's related to something else I was wondering. All of that discussion is, is coming out of ESSA, coming out of federal policy. And I know, you know, a lot of people think, okay, like schools shouldn't only teach arithmetic and reading. They should provide a general, well-rounded education, you know, whatever that means. Do you have any sense of, like in a, in a survey sense, how many people or what percentage of the population sort of truly believes that public schools should provide this broad education as opposed to a, a more narrow, academically focused education? We have seen like pretty strong uh, evidence that there is pretty strong support from parents. So from polling data, Obviously, we have the Americans for the Arts. They they regularly conduct surveys, Education Next, Ipsos. They all regularly poll parents and ask them, you know, kind of what their views are and what their preferences are for education. And pretty consistently, we see about 90% of parents saying that they favor, you know, the arts being a part of a, you know, well-rounded education. And it's also pretty remarkable that it's also bipartisan support. So it's not you know, just Democrats or Republicans who are really pushing for this. The other big development that it's definitely noteworthy in terms of reflecting the support for the arts right now is the the recent passing of California's Proposition 28, which is going to require an annual source of funding for K-12 public schools for arts and music education. That's going to be a minimum of 1% of the total state and local revenues that local education edu- ed- local education agencies receive under under the proposition. And that actually passed with 64% of the vote, which we think is also just another strong ringing endorsement of parental support for wanting, you know, robust arts education and, and K-12 schooling. Yeah. Well, I mean, I got, it's probably 
there's not many things that 90% of parents agree on. So I think it's pretty important to note that that there is this strong consensus in the general population and among parents that arts are, are part of a good schooling environment and also the bipartisan support that led to some of these policy changes. So coming back to the title of your paper, you're, you're trying to estimate the causal effect or the, you know, the implication of providing arts education on student outcomes. Prior to your study, though, how much credible evidence do we have, if any, that arts education improves measurable student outcomes? And I know the word measurable there is doing a lot of work. It's been rough for the arts education world. And the research, I think, has largely been hampered by a lack of good data. I mean, when the data are there, both in terms of inputs, you know, who's getting arts education, um, what type are they getting, and then the types of outputs that you might think arts education would affect. So a lot of the earliest research has been correlational and obviously suffers from selection bias, where somebody produces a paper where they say students enrolled in arts classes have higher graduation rates or higher ACT scores, but we don't know if that's, you know, the arts making students more awesome, or if it's just, you know, more awesome students are enrolling in arts courses. That's been the story of arts education for a long time. And that's not only you know, relying on a correlational data, it's also relying on what we might think is a flawed theory of change in terms of why would we expect arts education to improve these kind of like common metrics. People are looking at English writing scores, uh, people are looking at math uh, achievement scores. It's not necessarily that that's where somebody came up with a theoretical framework and said, here's where we should look for the effects of arts education. It's just that's where the data exist. So now there are a handful of quasi-experimental and a couple of experimental studies that have approached this question with better data, usually originally collected data, and some RCTs. They've largely focused on sort of like one-off arts experiences in uh, smaller scale sort of situations. One of the advantages of what we were able to do in Houston was to do this big district-wide model with so many different aspects of arts education. But that said, you know, there is, I think, this emerging, emerging consensus that the arts have real measurable benefits, probably not on raising math scores. And why should they? We don't have studies looking at, you know, the effects of algebra instruction on arts outcomes. But when it comes to, you know, looking at things that are more theoretically aligned, the arts really seem to have measurable benefits in terms of social emotional development, school engagement, critical thinking, and things that, you know, interestingly are sort of becoming more and more relevant in the policy circles that are talking about education policy and where we're going and what we're focusing on. Well, and, and I think those things are increasingly valuable in the workforce, or, or at least sort of the, the value to lifetime outcomes is, is increasingly being recognized. And I think that's a really good point. We don't look at we don't look at the effect of algebra tutoring on creativity or something like that. So one other thing I was wondering before we get into what you did in Houston is when we talked about resources being diverted away from arts programs or, or funding being reduced for whatever reason, how do schools or parents or teachers react to that? Does the art Education uh, literally just vanish, or are there sort of creative workarounds that that schools uh, and maybe individual teachers have have tried to at least save some arts education? Yeah, so there is some evidence that for 
some student populations and individuals from certain communities that it does effectively just go away. But as you alluded to, there definitely are places where the response is such that students are getting arts education, but just in different ways than, you know, traditional brick and mortar school provision. So we do know, you know, some places, some schools have to get creative because many states still have requirements. So what some some schools will do is they will integrate arts learning into other subject areas. We know areas you know that are typically more affluent that parents will subsidize it, whether it's before or after school programming outside of the school. We do also know that as becomes you know a, a critical component of this particular study that arts organizations are increasingly partnering with schools to help you know, subsidize opportunities and, and reduce disparities in these experiences for students. So these will just be, you know, local arts organizations that often have budgets specifically allocated towards providing uh, K-12 educational outreach. And they'll often either have existing relationships or, or reach out to schools to try to get in and partner up and, and provide some of these opportunities. Okay. And they're donating money or expertise all, maybe maybe some supplies all of the above yeah so it can be in many cases they have you know uh, they have teaching artists who work at these organizations and they will actually go in and work with students and teachers they often sometimes you know have resources that they donate there are you know several music organizations that will donate instruments to schools but yeah it's it's a whole it's really the gamut of different ways of trying to just provide students with opportunities and resources to to engage in the arts okay so it's a little bit of like of a market response rather than a policy response, I guess. And that's exactly what you're studying in Houston, the Arts Access Initiative. Before we really dive into the to what happened in Houston, though, I'm curious, and I assume that there, there must be similar things in other cities. Is that right? And can you give us a sense of, of how common this is? I'm assuming it's mostly in bigger cities that do have a bigger art scene. Is that right? I think it is actually quite common these days, especially in big cities. I don't know of, I don't know of a major U.S. city that doesn't have something like this. So, oh wow! I mean, we're familiar with work that's happening in Boston, Chicago, uh, Dallas, Austin, Seattle, New Orleans, Los Angeles, where basically there is some sort of collective, sort of shared initiative with commonly, you know, some organizing agent, a backbone organization, as we call them. So for example, in Chicago, it's a group called Ingenuity. In Boston, it's a group called Advestors. And they're bringing together coalitions of willing arts providers, which, you know, tends to number in the double digits, 50 to 100 different arts organizations, working with the school district, working with local philanthropies, working with data teams to shine a light on what's happening and what needs to happen. And these community partnerships, there's, you are right, they are somewhat organically happening. There's not, uh, there's not federal funding, you know, earmarked for this type of initiative, but they are definitely more likely to be networked with each other. They know each other. We've come to know a lot of them. And I think that was, you know, one of the the, the interesting things about this, this research that we we're able to do is we we're able to look at something that really is this organic response that's happening in a lot of different places. And it's certainly happening in non-urban areas too. Most towns have local arts organizations that are very interested in providing educational services. 
if you learn about these nonprofits and these arts organizations, uh, part of their fundamental mission, and I think estimates say maybe a third of their budgets are usually earmarked for educational offerings. So it's not just a uh, an opportunity, but it's actually a very low cost opportunity in a lot of ways. That's heavily subsidized, heavily subsidized through philanthropic efforts for schools to sort of provide this broad, well-rounded access to lots of different experiences. Oh yeah, that's great. I didn't realize that I didn't realize how common it was, I guess, you know, almost, you know, approaching universal even maybe. So in Houston, the particular initiative and and collaborative effort that that you're studying is called the AAI, the Arts Access Initiative. And it seems like it came back, you know, it came about pretty organically, like we said. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about that story and, and who the main players were and what was their goal or, or objective from the beginning? Yeah, so the Arts Access Initiative in Houston, it launched around about 10 years ago, so around 2013. And the major players were, um, there was a local organization called Young Audiences, which Brian alluded to, or he mentioned earlier the notion of a backbone organization that really kind of spearheads these efforts. So Young Audiences served that role. Houston, the Houston Independent School District uh, was involved consortium of pretty much all the local arts organizations, at least all the major arts organizations in Houston, the mayor's office, uh, local businesses, philanthropic organizations. And then uh, they wanted to get researchers involved. So that's where uh, Brian and I got plugged into this initiative. And the general idea, fortunately, is right there in the title. Uh, Arts Access was the number one objective. So they knew that you know there were major disparities in terms of what students have available to them in terms of arts educational opportunities. And so they really wanted to first assess the extent of those disparities and you know really be able to target their efforts to serve the students who had the lowest levels of uh, arts educational resources and opportunities. And then ultimately they had this idea of basically using the the wealth of arts resources available in Houston through the arts organizations to work with schools, partnering with them to provide uh, opportunities to ultimately reduce the disparities that uh, existed in, in terms of the students' arts access. And it sounds like that there was some legitimate interest uh, from AAI uh, in evaluating their effectiveness, which led to to them working with you and also working with the Houston school uh, ISD, the, the intermediate school district to perform a credible analysis of the program. I, I'm always curious in, in partnerships like this, you know, how, how hard did you guys have to work to convince them of the utility of a randomized experiment uh, of a careful evaluation? Or was that something that they sort of always knew they wanted? No, that was that was a real challenge. So they definitely knew that they wanted to do an evaluation, which is great. So the um, the local philanthropic organizations and the, the business representatives and those people, like they already knew uh, and had extensive experience in terms of like working with researchers and 
evaluating a lot of the the initiatives that they were, you know, supporting. And so they recognized that it was, you know, worthwhile to make sure that these things that they were supporting were actually having the intended effect. So they were definitely on board from the onset with the evaluation aspect. The part about convincing them to do a randomized control trial was a bit trickier. So fortunately, the way the timing worked out, uh, so Brian and I uh, worked uh, with Jay Green actually on uh, an experiment, randomized control trial uh, with the Crystal Bridges Museum up in Arkansas. And the results from that study had just come out and we had actually just had a a write-up. And that study was about the field trips to the museum? Correct, correct. And um, the findings of that, we had had just written up and gotten published in uh, the New York Times and we're getting a lot of really good press. And that really, yeah, I remember that. that really helped a lot because I think that because one of the things that a lot of people at the table were kind of asking uh, me and, and Brian was, you know, what is it about this study that's getting so much? We've seen so much, you know, evidence or, you know, so-called evidence of the, the impacts of the arts in schools that, you know, we read about. But why is it that this study is really getting headlines and like really getting a lot of attention? And, you know, telling them that, well, the big component was that we just haven't had great, you know, investigations that lend themselves to, you know, credible causal evidence has been what's really been lacking. And they were kind of like, oh, okay. And when I said like, well, you know, we can do the same thing here. Um, and, you know, that there's many benefits to this study that did not exist in that study, primarily being that these things are happening in regular everyday school environments for the most part, and that this is going to be a more sustained year-long uh, intervention. So it was like this. This could also have the same thing, um, and that that seemed to carry a lot of weight, especially with the the funders of the program who really wanted to make sure that funding this thing could you know have some long lasting effects that would be beneficial not just to the Houston community but more broadly. Yeah, I'm sure the carrot or the you know dangling that carrot of you know if we do this careful RCT, not only will we have very credible evidence. But we also will probably get, you know, picked up by the New York Times and NPR and, and national media like that, which I'm sure appeals to them, not just, you know, for their own ego or whatever, but but for the mission of of making arts education more accessible and, and uh, almost providing a blueprint to other cities about how to really do it well. So that's really great. Yeah. And and obviously it, it worked out well. And we're we're all glad that, that you were able to get them to see the light, so to speak, with the value of an RCT. So, you know, as you're designing this experiment where you're going to randomly provide access uh, to to certain schools and and not to others, and I think Brian hit on this a little bit earlier, but what is the exact theory of change that we have in mind here? Or we might say, like, what are the mechanisms through which we expect arts education to affect different measures of student success? Well, I think that's a great question. And it's actually a question that I believe the arts education research community has struggled for, struggled with for some time. And it's taken a lot of time to develop. Yeah. When Dan and I got into this research space, uh, I think that it was even more severely underdeveloped. And there had been sort of a major uh, synthesis of all the research that had been done up to this point, uh, a Wallace report called Gifts of the Muse, which 
really um, criticized the, the field of research around the arts by o- always looking what they called instrumental benefits, which were this, this idea that these benefits were somewhat related to things that the arts might transfer to, but they weren't intrinsically tied to the arts. So you might say, oh, maybe through doing you know some sort of arts education, learning music or something, you're, you end up be, becoming better at math, but that's a transfer effect. It's not a direct effect. And so we really, and you know, in some of the earliest museum research, we cast this really wide net. We started going, you know, reading the the theoretical literature, going to the the conferences that are more associated with people in this field, holding lots of interviews, and just asking people, like you would in any time you were doing an evaluation, you know, what do you think is happening here? And we got a lot more responses, and the in the range of social emotional development and critical thinking skills and other things. But also, I mean, just to be clear, you know, some pushback on this attempt to always try to put things in terms of some value, outside value. So I'll just say for, there was a report I worked on with the American Academy of Arts and Sciences a couple of years ago now, where we really tried to sort of like Put, you know, let's let's come up with the list of what these things, uh, what the arts are doing, and what these benefits are. And you know, one of the first things on the list are, well, it's good for its own sake. The the arts are a fundamental mode of human expression that we should know because it's a way of knowing and it's a way of understanding the world. We can't really measure that. So when it comes to you know the other aspects that the report identified is, you know, arts education clearly broadens students' understanding of other cultures and history. You know, culture and history is often recorded through the arts, and as much you know, as as a primary mechanism for that, it certainly supports social emotional development. Students have ways of expressing themselves, ways of expressing themselves to their peers, ways to work in group settings, ways to engage with art that causes them to think deeply about the human condition, and all of that sort of falls into the both the social and then the emotional part of that, which. Sidebar, I wish that we didn't lump those terms together as often as we do, because I think they're both quite important on their own. It certainly affects school engagement. So many of the sort of people that we talk to, especially generating that report, will say that arts education is the thing that kept them going to school, kept them from dropping out because it was a way for them to engage and feel like they were connected to some sort of culture at their school. Um, And then obviously more tangible things. It's a way for students to explore careers different careers and learn different technical skills, whether it's using Photoshop or something that's going to lead to a a career in architecture or something. But nowhere in that report did we say that the arts would directly affect student achievement in other tested subjects, although that's plausibly something that could happen if it's just a mediating sort of factor that increases school engagement and enjoyment and makes learning something that students are more invested in. I think that's exactly right. And a a lot of this discussion actually reminds me of the growing research on teachers and and how teachers and schools affect more than just math scores and and you know algebra prowess but but teachers and schools affect socio-emotional learning non-cognitive skills behavioral skills things like that you know perceptions of, of the world and plans for the future and I know you're involved in some of that research as well. How does that idea or those ideas and that research shape your thinking about the potential benefits of arts training? I think that those those research studies are, are a perfect triangulation, I think, of the types of things that we're 
um, looking at here. And, you know, I wish that, I think some of the best stuff right now, I think Caribou Jackson has pioneered a lot of this, where his own research has found that schools that are adding value in terms of social emotional development explains a considerable amount of not only schools impact on test scores, but also lots of um, later life outcomes. And some of their most recent work, which I, I know the, he's done with John Easton, and uh, John is a member of our technical working group on the lab, uh, and that's specifically why we brought in John for his expertise, is because these studies that are looking at schools improving that improve student social-emotional development measured by survey items capturing interpersonal skills, school connectedness, academic engagement. Schools that are increasing those metrics are also increasing the likelihood that students are on track, have fewer absences, lower disciplinary fractions, fewer school-based arrests, increased graduation rates, increased college going. So all of these things that we think are incredibly important, especially if you if you talk to parents and you know ask them what they think that the outcomes are which outcomes are important for their children's education. And so I think a logical next step for this line of research that I think dovetails nicely with our research is in those studies where we see that some schools, some teachers are better at producing social emotional development, what are the mechanisms there? Is it related to higher involvement and access to arts education? Is it you know, more recess? Is it being on the debate team? Is it all of these other things that we think are important but have largely flown under the radar when it comes to, you know, really figuring out how they're contributing to student and later life success? Yeah. You know, I, th- I think that's right. And, and it, 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 like you said, I think it does triangulate things nicely um, as there is this sort of more general, I guess, acknowledgement in, in research that we should be looking at at a broader set of outcome measures um, for for all school inputs. So, okay, so we have a a sense of the theory of change, the the types of outcomes that that we're going to focus on that that might be affected by this art program in Houston. Now, to do that, of course, you need data. And one thing I found pretty interesting in your study is that it sounds like the arts initiative in Houston sort of preemptively looked at some school district data to identify the schools that were most in need of support and then sort of targeted the program to those schools. I'm curious how, you know, was that the art program's own idea and and what led to, to the Houston district sharing their data and, and how did that process work? Yeah, so... The AI team knew from the beginning that step one was they wanted to identify uh, the extent to disparities in arts access. And then they wanted to figure out, you know, obviously, where are the areas that they wanted to primarily target with this initiative um, from from the onset. They actually did not uh, get data from the school district. They actually went out uh, impressively and did their own data collection efforts and actually got pretty close to 100 percent response rate, which I thought was incredibly impressive. Yeah, they're not even, uh, these were not even researchers uh, who they're just like go-getters who definitely knew how to conduct a survey. Um, I think it also helped that the, you know, understanding that the mission was to help increase uh, access to arts, you know, helped motivate a lot of schools to want to provide this information. Yeah, they trusted. Yeah, yeah. They knew what the intent was. So yeah, there was, it was, it was good. And then, so they were primarily just going around and asking 
you know, whether there was a certified arts teacher on campus, how, if they did have any, how many did they have? What were the subject areas they were certified to teach in and, you know, offering courses in? Um, and then they also obviously wanted to know how many partnerships these arts organizations, how, excuse me, how many partnerships schools had uh, with arts organizations uh, already, because they knew that those were pretty common throughout the district. So they wanted to see the extent to which those were already taking place. The like the big takeaway from this uh, data collection effort was that they found about 30% of schools were entirely lacking in arts educational resources. So they dubbed them arts deserts. So we're also talking about 30%. Like nothing. Yeah, totally. Like 30 didn't have a full-time arts teacher, uh, didn't have before after school programs. And either they might have had one arts partnership or they had zero. And arts partnership here was pretty loosely defined. So we're talking about if they if the school participated in a one-off field trip experience, like that counted as an arts partnership. So some schools effectively were only doing like one of those per year. So w- there was a, a pretty sizable number of schools that seemingly their, their students just were not getting arts in school. And then once they identified these uh, art desert schools, the, the program was offered at the school level. Is that right? So like, you know, it wasn't particular classrooms or particular students. It was a school was even offered the program or not. Correct. Yeah. So um, and and so this is kind of a thing that makes Houston ISD a little bit different from probably most school districts throughout the country is that uh, schools have a great deal of autonomy uh, within the district. So it was ultimately voluntary. The district couldn't require all the schools to participate. So uh, they, they right. basically, so it's like the school principal decided? Yes, ultimately. So it was a combination of they were screening on schools that were in the highest need. And they were definitely like marketing and advertising this opportunity to get, you know, a nice substantial influx of arts learning opportunities. But at the end of the day, mm-hmm. it was totally, it, it required the principal to opt in to want to actually participate in the initiative. Okay. Do you know of anybody that did not opt in? So it wasn't like a, so it's kind of the opt-in thing is kind of strange. So it wasn't like they would, you know, call up and say like, Hey, here's an offer. They would say, you know, Hey, do you want to apply to be in this program? And so ultimately we're talking about a school district that has about just a little under 300 schools. I don't remember offhand how many, well, I can quickly do the math, right? So about 30% of them uh, were considered deserts. So that, that takes us down to about a hundred of those schools and then about 60 of them applied uh, to participate. The other thing to keep in mind is like, this was not just like a, a an easy application because they were told up front, like, hey, there's going to be, you know, a lot of requirements on your end in terms of like, you know, you're going to have to have your, encourage your teachers to report engage in, yeah, reporting, yeah. Prof- you have to be engaged in professional development, you know, you're going to get mm-hmm. resources, but we expect you to use these resources. So yeah, it ended up being about okay. uh, 60 schools uh, ultimately said that they wanted. Okay. Which is, it sounds like roughly about two thirds of the eligible schools made this application. Yeah, it might actually even be a little bit more than that because it was also limited to just elementary and middle schools. And I don't know off the top of my head what right. the breakdown yeah. is in, in the district in terms of, yeah. Definitely, it seems like the the majority of, of eligible schools opted in to applying. Um, so this, this was appealing to them. Uh, the other thing I was wondering is, and I'm sure many of our listeners are wondering, is in terms of funding, how specific can you be about where the funding came from? And also just how expensive 
was the program maybe like on a per school basis or a per student basis? Do you have a, a rough estimate of that? Yeah, that's it's really tricky. Unfortunately, that's like a common question we often get, and I wish that we had a more precise dollar amount that we could give. So programming was provided through a combination of philanthropic support, and we do have the dollar amount on that. But then the other thing that that's hard for us to to really get a, a value, a dollar value on, is that there were a lot of subsidized offerings from participating arts organizations. So we don't necessarily... And also, I guess, in-kind contributions, exactly, too. Exactly. Yeah, in-kind and yeah. subsidized. Um, yeah, a lot of these places serve Title I schools, and they get donations to provide program. And we don't We don't have a good... We tried to, and it just it, it, wasn't, it wasn't happening because we couldn't compel arts organizations to provide that information. So the one thing that we do know is that uh, the philanthropic support uh, stated that they wanted every school to provide at least $1 per student out of their own budget, but that they would match up to $10 per student uh, from their own budget. So with that offer, we do know that on average, uh, schools ultimately put up $7.33 uh, per student. So we know that ultimately, at least in terms of a uh, school level contribution plus the match that uh, the budget ends up being about $14.67 per student at the school. And that's for the whole year. Correct. Yeah. So schools were invited. Many of them uh, took the invitation, you, you know, respond to the invitation by applying to be in the program. Once they got in, what did the programming look like? Like what would a specific school be offered and and I know it's probably well not probably it, it I know that it it varies across schools just because different organizations are providing different stuff. But what would you know an average school receive as part of this program? And to what extent would their program be tailored to their particular school? Yeah. So as you kind of have already hinted at, it was really varied pretty substantially across schools. The way it worked, though, was that uh, a liaison from the Arts Access Initiative would work with either the principal or somebody who was designated at the school to really be involved with the selection process of what programs their students would ultimately get. So they literally basically had like a menu of like, here are all the different programs that are being provided through this Arts Access Initiative. And that, you know, they were dance, music, theater, visual arts, as well as they were all the different formats. So there were teaching artist residencies, there were field trips, there were in-school performances, there was uh, teacher professional development, there were before and after school programs. So what the, the Arts Access Initiative liaison would do was they would highly encourage the principal to do you know a little bit of everything, like provide all the different disciplines, provide all the different formats, so they were really encouraged to do that. But at the end of the day, principals could ultimately decide what they thought was best for their students. We know in terms of like looking at what the schools ultimately ended up selecting, we know that 54% of the, the programs that were selected were theater-based, 12% uh, were dance, 18% were music, and 16% were visual arts. And then in terms of the format, in terms of the program selections, uh, a third of them were teaching artist residencies, 31% were in-school performances, 27% uh, were field trips, and then 9% were before or after-school programs. Okay. So there really was a good mix of, of hands-on making their own art for students and 
just being exposed to, to various f- professional presentations or formal presentations. Yeah, it's really so varied that it, it's kind of hard to describe, but I think describing it as varied is helpful. Yeah. I think there's like a few other key things, and this is one thing that having worked closely in these types of environments, I think that maybe people who aren't in these spaces don't quite realize how vibrant and multifaceted the nonprofit arts and cultural sector is. I think there's a few takeaways that that you know we observed you know when looking at this more than 50 different arts organizations were participating and one of the one of the i think key takeaways is that these arts organizations aren't getting into education by accident and it wasn't new to them um, the mass vast majority of them have these well articulated educational philosophies and goals and had been providing educational services in some capacity um, since before this and even making efforts to align with education standards. They also usually tended to have a deliberate focus on social emotional development where they would if you look if you look go to their websites for example they'll talk about the skills and things that they're working on towards that end. They're incredibly culturally diverse, which I think is uh, particularly important because we're looking at a very culturally diverse set of students in Houston and and in most areas now. So there were programs that ranged from African dance and drumming to Brazilian music to Chinese art and hip-hop music and dance, uh, Hispanic literature programs. And they also had a lot of experience working and serving under, uh, underserved student populations. So it's just something that they you know, wear, are very public about and part of their mission. Yeah, I think that's a good point because I... Um like you said, Houston is a very diverse city and a very diverse school district. But I, I imagine that that within the district, there's a little bit of segregation across schools in the sense that some schools have a higher share of white students or black students or Hispanic students. And sort of tying the the cultural aspect of the arts to the demographic composition of the student body in a particular school might have been a a point of emphasis for the principal and the provider. Is that, did you see that sort of thing happen? Yeah, that's, that's totally fair. And, and, and in fact, that would even vary, right? So you had some principals who would say like, I want to make sure that some of the offerings are, you know, uh, reflections of the students I serve. But then you also have te- uh, principals who were like, no, I want to intentionally and deliberately select programming that is very different from what the students experience or, you know, is reflected in their own culture. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, even that varied substantially. Oh, I'm just curious. Did did you investigate sort of the the benefits of of one approach versus the other of of, of trying to match cultures or or trying to provide something like truly different and new? Oh, it's just so like so because we end up with you know 21 treatment schools. Like, there's not I you know it's just really difficult to categorize because yeah. like and then to even like quantify oh, the extent yeah. to which that actually is happening. Um, yeah, it was just really mm-hmm. difficult. And on that note, we've said the process is that schools were invited to apply, then schools did apply, then they were invited to participate, and the participation happened at the school level. So for a school that was part of the program, were all the students in the school somehow required to participate, or was it voluntary at the student level? Or I'd imagine that it probably varies depending on whether the activity was during or after school. But can you uh, talk us through that a little bit about just generally, to what extent were students required to participate? Yeah, so I mean that that varied as as well. Um, we we do know that uh, the liaison 
from the Arts Access Initiative definitely encouraged uh, school leaders to make sure that they were selecting programs such that all students would get some sort of, you know, opportunity um, and that, you know, they would all get opportunities in all the different uh, disciplines and formats and whatnot. But ultimately, in terms of whether they could force uh, principals to do that, you know, they couldn't. It's worth noting, I think, that 18 of the 21 schools that were in the treatment group were elementary schools. And so because of that, I think that those principals tend to have a much easier time in terms of being able to select programs that they then knew would, you know, get broad coverage because it tends to just be easier to schedule and, and plug those things in with elementary school students where they don't have as much say over what they're ultimately doing. The middle schools, we know for a fact, but we it's again difficult because we don't have student level data on this, that there, you know, there was a lot more in terms of like middle school students being able to, you know, depending on what their schedule looked like, opt in or opt out of some of these programs. And and the middle schools were the ones much more likely to have like before and after school programs, for example. Uh, so, right. yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that's true, you know, as you know, the, the older students get the more discretion they have over, over their day. So that makes sense. So that said, what you estimate here is what we would call an ITT or intent to treat effect estimate, which isn't a bad thing. In, in fact, it's arguably the, the most policy relevant estimate we can get because it's estimating the effect of providing access to something as opposed to guaranteed receipt of, of something. Did I interpret this right? You, you basically are estimating an ITT. Right, that's correct. And I mean, you might say that that means that these are, uh, you could say these are lower bound estimates uh, in the sense that, you know, the students who actually did have the experiences may, uh, you know, they're being averaged with students who didn't have the experiences. And so the effect on the students who were able to participate may have actually been higher. And um, had there been broader coverage, there may have been more effects and more benefits for more students, but that's a little bit um, more difficult to say, to say. We're not able to just isolate the students who received the treatment. So this is as 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 close as we can get is using this intent to treat. But I agree with you. I think we both agree with you that this is actually the poli the more policy relevant uh, way to interpret these because this is how things were rolled out in the in the natural world in this natural situation where you know people had some freedom to not participate or participate at different levels, and this is what the effects of the policy were. Yeah, no, uh, fully agreed. And I also, I, I appreciate your reminder that you can also view it as a lower bound. And, and so that uh, another nice thing is that this is almost a, a conservative estimate in the sense that for the kids who, who uh, really did engage with the program, the effects was was bigger than, than what you're reporting. So so that's what you're reporting in this, in this uh, school level RCT where 20-some schools receive a treatment, the control group did not. And before we really dive into the numerical estimates, I, I just wanted to talk a little bit about the data and the collaboration with the Houston ISD. At some point, the district had to buy into this and share data, I think. And I'm just curious how that went and what type of data were you most interested in getting from the district versus data that you might have to collect yourself via surveys uh, or, or that the arts initiative might have collect might have to collect with surveys. Yeah, so I was actually a postdoctoral fellow at the time of this evaluation with the Houston Education Research Consortium, which is oh, okay. yeah, so it's a research practitioner partnership 
between Rice University and Houston ISD. So that really helped facilitate a lot of the the data collection uh, uh, component. Right. They were familiar with you. They trusted you. Absolutely. Yeah. And so through that, we already had access then to the administrative data that the the district already regularly collects and and stores and provides to the the research consortium. It's also known as HERC. just to give them a quick plug. But then because we were, you know, regularly discussing what this evaluation would look like with Houston ISD and, you know, having conversations about like, what are the, you know, what is the theory of change? What are the, you know, theoretical outcomes that we are expecting to be affected by this intervention? We, we discussed that, you know, it would be, you know, excellent if we could also collect some original data uh, through student surveys to collect, you know, data on a host of outcomes that are not available in that administrative data. So, you know, we were really interested in a lot of these like school engagement, uh, social and emotional learning type outcomes. Uh, So we, you know, basically asked if we could coordinate with the district to uh, collect data from them. And so they, we wanted to do it uh, both years uh, that the pilot uh, was going on for the arts access initiative, but ultimately, you know, you have to make compromises and they, they agreed to let us do one year uh, or excuse me, one round of data collection, which we decided to do uh, when they had the full uh, 21 school pilot uh, in place. So that's, that's ultimately how that aspect came into play. Okay. And then the, the, the survey data is where you got measures for things like um, emotional empathy and some of the other socio-emotional measures. Um, and I think that's one of the more interesting effects you find. Could you walk us through what the effects on some of those measures were and, and how large they are, how we should interpret them? What do those effects mean for student development down the road? Yeah, so the surveys that the students took, we had a number of social-emotional development type questions on there, and they would fall into the domains of emotional empathy, cognitive empathy, tolerance, and student engagement, and college aspirations. And so the empathy items, for example, so the two common ways that in the empathy literature, luckily we have a good partner, cognitive psychologist that works with works with us on this. Okay. Sarah Conrath advises. And so, you know, emotional empathy is understanding and learning from others' perspective, which is, you know, considered something that happens when you're engaging with art because you're engaging with someone else's perspective. You're, if you're in a theater situation or a visual art situation, um, a lot of these workshops. Also, learning to uh, engage with your peers in that sort of way. And then cognitive empathy, being more uh, able to understand what it's like to be in someone else's shoes. You know, specifically for the full sample, we did have this um, significant effect on emotional empathy. So that's captured by a, a survey question, for example, that's, I want to help people who are treated badly. So having more empathy for other people being one of the main findings here. And that's 18% of a standard deviation, which isn't helpful for this audience. I, I think it's a, it's a technical term that we always, us researchers, have trouble communicating. But, I mean, that would be considered a, a moderate effect. And, uh, you know, in terms of saying, like, what that means for students and their development, I mean, I don't think that we're there yet, or, or we know. I think that we think that it's important because, 
the current situation out there, you know, in the education landscape is troubling in a lot of ways um, in terms of the increases in you know, teen suicide rates are at all-time highs, uh, anxiety levels, um, increases in bullying. I mean, the school violence and shooting, things that are happening. It would be hard to say that interventions that increase empathy are not important, but it's very hard to put you know, a standard deviation of a survey measure in some sort of context like that. That's fair. I guess I was wondering, like, there must be either like correlational evidence that that higher empathy scores are associated with better longer term outcomes, or maybe just comparing the effect size to the effect of of, of other interventions. Right. I mean, they, they're certainly correlated with things later in life in terms of altruistic and uh, sort, sort of like donating to charities is one of like a common measure that um, people in the empathy literature work with or volunteering uh, community service. But yeah, I mean, certainly important stuff. I don't think that we have any way to sort of benchmark that standard deviation because really I've never seen, you don't see much of much of this stuff make its way into education research in the first place. Okay. That's fair. But it sounds like it, if I just think about like teacher effects, 20% of a standard deviation is moderate to even big maybe. Um, so I, I do think these are, these are very important effects that you've identified. Another thing I wondered is, and this might be hard given that there's only 20 schools or so, but were you able to look at all about whether certain types of schools were more affected than others? And if so, why why do you think that happened? Well, the you know, sort of the, one of the big things that we find is that the effects are much long, much larger, more pronounced, uh, more robust to different specifications in the elementary schools. And Dan alluded to this earlier when he mentioned that, you know, I think 86 or 87% of the sample was were elementary schools. So it was a bigger part of the initiative, a bigger part of the sample that we can look at. And then it's also, they received sort of the most programming in terms of saturation at the school level. Yeah. And they also probably had the highest participation rates, like we talked about. Exactly, yeah. right. And so when we isolate just the elementary schools, we actually pick up more effects. So, you know, for the full sample, we actually have we have this reduction in disciplinary actions, infractions. We have improvement in writing scores. And when we look at the elementary schools isolated, we also have increases in cognitive empathy in addition to emotional empathy, but also really robust results when it comes to increases in school engagement and the school engagement measures, you know, uh, range are things like schoolwork is interesting. Um, this school is a happy place for me to be. Uh, school makes me think about things in new ways. And that, um, that, that pops up, uh, most specifically in the elementary schools as quite robust and also among English language learners being one of the other subgroups that, um, seem to have more pronounced effects. Well, yeah, I, th- I think that those school engagement, measures are, are very important and also very good news um, because I think that that not only is that an important outcome now, but that will hopefully sort of itself be an intermediary or, or a channel to better performance, you know, as students progress through school. Um, so I, I was very uh, happy to see that that was included in your in your study, uh, those types of engagement measures. Um, and discipline too, the discipline results are, are important. Um, I don't know that we talked much about them, uh, but, but quickly, what, can you remind us, what are the, sort of how large were the effects on discipline? And I assume that means suspensions were reduced? 
Uh, so it wasn't suspensions necessarily. Uh, so the, the district does collect data on whether or not students receive disciplinary infractions. Um, and, and so we just simply, because it was the easiest to interpret and report, uh, we, we basically uh, used a dichotomous measure for whether or not a student was disciplined at any point in the school year or not. And so we, we found basically it's a, it a 3.6 uh, percentage point decrease in terms of the, the, the proportion of students who are being disciplined uh, over the course of the year. And in elementary school, that, that three percentage point decrease um, is probably a fairly big drop in, in percent. Yeah. And, and not all, okay. So disciplinary infractions don't necessarily lead to a suspension, but they were, you know, reported to the office or something like that. Yeah. So like formally documented in terms of, the, so they had to, yeah. So it could have been, there's a whole host of different, you know, codings that go into disciplinary infractions. And it was just basically whether or not a student received, you know, anyone that was formally registered, uh, in the administrative records. Yeah, I think, I mean, kind of like school engagement, again, I think that's important in itself, but it's also important in, in sort of what it means and how it changes the student's general, you know, life in school and, and approach towards school moving forward. Um, so I think that's a, another a, a really important result that goes along with the socio-emotional and empathy results and really... I think highlights sort of the holistic effects of this arts education program, you know, on how students engage with school generally and, um, and, and hopefully their, their longer term success as well. I think that's right. It, it also kind of helps us that I think that, you know, conducting a study like this, we feel like everything is somewhat theoretically aligned, like it makes sense. I mean, if we had found increases in math scores, we may have been a little bit concerned. But having um, having these effects and reductions in disciplines, um, increases in empathy, increases in uh, engagement for the elementary students, and increases in um, aspirations for college, and then I don't think we've talked about the writing scores. Um, increases in writing scores, I think, is you know that is the only sort of standardized test outcome that we have. But that is the one that I think makes the most theoretical sense. And there were actually some of the programs were actually focused on literary arts, including you know sort of like different ethnic literary arts. You know, focusing on me Mexican literature or um, different cultural aspects of. Uh, you know, uh, write, reading and writing, as well as just students generally being in programs where they were learning how to express themselves better. And so the writing impact that we have is it's, you know, it's 13% of a standard deviation, uh, which isn't nothing, that's for sure. Um, but we're actually able to disaggregate that effect into two different components. Um, we're able to look at open response essays compared to composition skills. And uh, the effects are nearly twice as large for the written composition portion of the exam uh, compared to the writing mechanics uh, portion of the exam. And so, again, this finding aligns with this theory that we're really honing in on, that students became better at expressing themselves and articulating their own ideas through uh, these arts experiences. Yeah, no, that that is a really important result. And I think you, you nailed it, that all these things are aligned with each other in very intuitive ways that make sense and just further add to the, the credibility of, of the results. But they also really, I think, provide uh, some important and novel insights into the specific ways and specific dimensions that 
arts education uh, helps students and improves uh, you know student development on all of these related but distinct ways. So uh, we're about out of time. I want to start to wrap up. And again, I just enjoyed the study so much uh, because it provides you know really credible, novel causal evidence using a thoughtful experiment where it, it truly was randomized, which schools receive a treatment and which didn't. And that eliminates the the age-old concern about selection bias, ab- about the better treatments being provided to students who are already advantaged in other ways. So it, it cuts through that problem that, that, like you guys have said, plagues a lot of prior research on arts education. I found the, the evidence uh, completely compelling that this program in Houston, uh, in these art desert schools, in these schools that had weaker underfunded arts ed education programs, this community intervention really did uh, boost a whole array of student outcomes. So I think it's an important data point to, to add to the, the broader literature. You know, the, the other study we mentioned was about the, the field trips, which was an RCT. Um, so uh, all of that said, I do have to ask, and we've alluded to Houston is is a unique city. The schools have autonomy. It's it's kind of a sprawling, large geographical place. It's an incredibly diverse place. To what extent do you think these results would replicate elsewhere? Do you have any evidence of, of uh, some of those other programs you mentioned, like in Boston or Chicago? H- have they been evaluated? And and if not, do you think we'd see similar results there? I do think that there that the that the research community and the arts education community are have have come a long way, at least in you know, especially in the last decade, of sort of like honing in on what it is exactly these types of educational interventions look like and the types of things they produce. And I I would expect and I think that we are starting to see things line up in terms of producing the same types of benefits. So I would not be surprised if this if there's increased consistency the more these types of studies are doing. And I wouldn't be surprised if it was replicated elsewhere. Um Lots of places are diverse, and lots of places have arts deserts uh, with under-resourced schools. That's you know sort of like the study after study that has been done. The very very good descriptive work that's been done out there has been to shine a light on places where there um, where arts education is lacking. Um, I think that in terms of actually being able to do these studies, the the data limitation still remains you know one of the largest things. Um, you, you did mention Boston. Uh, Dan and I did a project with the Boston community uh, looking at their data and working with the the investors group there where we found that um, arts uh, education using a quasi-experimental longitudinal design, arts education um, increased student attendance um, and increased some uh, school climate measures uh, on survey measures. Um, and that's another sort of corroborating piece where we're starting to see these same patterns emerge. So I would be I would be optimistic that these are somewhat generalizable. Yeah, I think that's right. And again, you know, a lot of the the generalizability uh, of any scale up or replication, it, it comes down to having good community partners that and, and good leaders that are you know want the program to work and and are willing to put in the work to to make sure that it works. So uh, along those lines. One of my last questions, I guess, for for both of you is, what guidance or advice would you give to other communities 
be it parents or schools or the art centers themselves, you know, local museums, local theater groups who want to mimic the Houston AAI in their own community? Uh, so I think, oh, uh, uh, one thing that I would definitely suggest um, that uh, seemed to be a major asset to the Houston community was the fact that through this initiative, it wasn't just like the typical, what, what I get the sense is a more typical arrangement, which is schools potentially viewing arts organizations as kind of just vendors of, uh, of programs and opportunities. So it's just, you know, I'm a, I'm a school leader and I want, you know, my students to, to get this cool experience. So I, you know, call up an arts organization and then I just have them come in and provide a program. Uh, in in this arts access initiative, I think one of the neat things that I think was incredibly beneficial to all the parties involved was the fact that the schools and the arts organizations were, you know, kind of, you know, metaphorically convening at the same table and talking about each other's needs and resources and like how they could, you know, make the best use of what was available. So it wasn't, it wasn't, it was truly collaborative. Yeah. It wasn't this vendor mentality. It was, you know, them actually communicating together to figure out what was the most effective way uh, to put to use the, the wealth of resources that they had in the community. No, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, and, and that clearly happened in, in Houston. I think that's great advice. And then the other, I guess, policy question is, is what about at the state or federal level, either regarding funding or requiring the provision of arts education or the, the measurement of arts education in some way? Um, do you have any advice or, or insights for policymakers at the, at the state or federal level, or even at the local level, I suppose? No, I think the policy question is huge. And, you know, I think that we started off this conversation talking a little bit about what I think is a disconnect between what many parents are looking for and what schools are currently being able to provide. And I see that as a disconnect between parental preferences and policymakers' actions. Um, you know, earlier we talked about Proposition 28 in California. This was a ballot initiative that gave voters the power to actually earmark funds for a for a, for a subject in schools. I've never heard of anything like that ever in education policy. It almost feels like a citizen's revolt. And I think that it is representative of this idea that you know, between the policy in the policymaking process, somewhere between parental preferences and societal needs and what policymakers are able to do, there's been some, you know, breakdown. I think this would be a, a good time to plug um, this report that came out uh, a couple of years ago, which it's called Arts for Life's Sake from the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, which if any you know of our listeners are interested in these types of policy recommendations, it lays, lays out, I think, what is a, you know, an exhaustive and comprehensive set of policy recommendations um, that can be done, taken at the local, state, uh, and federal level. But in short, what I would say of, of all of them, I think that uh, one of the most important uh, policy recommendations I would make are, are just in terms of transparency and data availability. So one of the most important elements of pushing change so far in all of the places where we've seen arts education strengthened has started with descriptive data that shines a light on the gaps in access or the lack of access or the disparities. This is what happened in California where they where data showed that only one in five schools had a full-time arts uh, educator. This is what happened in Houston, where they started with the baseline arts inventory, 
And there's actually a group called the Arts Education Data Project that's working on a national level. They've been doing this for over a decade, state by state by state. They started with New Jersey, which is considered to have, you know, now the best data system in terms of arts education access and availability. But the Arts Education Data Project now is active in 30 different states, making granular arts education data available, both to advocates, um, researchers, and Maybe this is just a shameless plug for those of us who do research and use data, but I also truly do believe that, you know, that's where it starts. And when it comes to policy advocacy, you know, without numbers, you're just another person with an opinion. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. And, and uh, you know, just like in some ways No Child Left Behind shined a light on uh, achievement gaps and, and even the Coleman report, you know, decades before that like you said, showing the numbers gives some real salience and real weight to these concerns about uh, access to the arts. So uh, uh, thanks for that. And thanks for taking the time to talk to us today. I I really enjoyed our discussion and I think it's an important paper and I I hope, uh, you know, folks out there get to take a look at it if they're interested. So with that, is is there any one last takeaway that that either of you would like to, to share with our listeners? I mean, I think one thing that maybe is worth mentioning is just another disconnect that we feel, I think, sometimes working with arts educators, people in this community, and looking at like other aspects of the policy community is that people in the space of arts and arts education tend to feel that they aren't uh, respected in the same way as other subjects. And so like a common sort of way that they express this is to say that the arts aren't a frill. This is legitimate serious important stuff and we should care about it and there's you know this problematic idea you know with too many stock photos that are produced showing you know kids having a great time with you know finger paints all over themselves but i don't think that it captures the seriousness and the deliberate uh, and important educational mission that's happening there there's a quote that we used a couple times in some of our reports from Benjamin Barber, where he says, as democracy depends on civil society, so civil society depends on the arts. Democracy ultimately rests on the arts commitment to free creativity, liberal diversity, and unfettered imagination. A government that supports the arts and humanities is not engaging in philanthropic activity, but assuring the conditions of its own flourishing." End quote. And I think that very lofty statements like that maybe seem a little bit too lofty, but in you know a world where we're at the same time sort of trying to figure out what is the purpose of education, and I think that we've come a long way from original purposes of education to think of it more as you know something that just provides workforce uh, skills and provides future employees for the, the system that we that we live in. There is this other you know, maybe more romantic vision of education that is definitely uh, important and definitely important now uh, when it comes to building a more educated and uh, accepting and empathetic society that is capable of living and functioning in a democracy together. I fully agree and appreciate the quote. And I really like the first simple point you made, which is that, you know, arts Arts aren't a, a frill or a, a tack on or a frivolous activity, but they're they're a real part of schooling and a real part of education. You know, just like other subjects. So, thank you so much again for taking the time to talk with us. And again, great paper. Uh, congratulations on the work that that you're both doing. 
at your lab, the Arts, Humanities, and Civic Engagement Lab, funded by the National Endowment for the Arts. You're both co-directors of the lab. Our guests today, again, were Dr. Dan Bowen, Associate Professor at Texas A&M, and Dr. Brian Casita, Assistant Professor at the Truman School of Government at the University of Missouri. So thanks again for for chatting and and hope to talk again soon sometime. Thanks so much, Seth. Thanks, Seth. Thank you for listening. This has been a production of JPAM, the Journal of Policy Analysis and Management, in conjunction with American University's School of Public Affairs. Please follow us on the APAM website and search for the JPAM podcast.